Chris. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul addresses Peter. He records this, but when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for certain men had come from James, for before certain men had come from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You know, in our study through the book of Galatians together, that text, that uh, illustration that Paul gives really moved me. It really spoke to me. Um, I come from a tradition that feels very much like that text reads. Um, And I think the church historically, not just our church, but the church in general, has struggled with how do we pursue holiness in the fear of God and yet follow the mission of Christ to embrace unholy people, to show kindness and love to the world around us. I mean, this is our mission, to expand the gospel beyond our heads in the sanctuary through gospel-centered community, which means we have to bring people into our community who aren't where we are spiritually. They're not as sanctified as we are. They haven't seen progress in pushing back against addictions and against uh, sins of the heart. They, they, they're, they're where they are. And so it's very easy for the church to get out uh, off mission in our pursuit or because of our pursuit of holiness. And I appreciate the authors that I've read who have said that tension will never go away. The point is to address it, to be cognizant of it, and to work on it. And so that's, that's been the goal behind this. Christ has come, Isaiah says, uh, prophesies, uh, the Lord says, you know, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Christ has come, as, as Titus, uh, Paul says to Titus in Titus 2.14, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. The danger for us, the danger for the church, is that we become the Pharisees, consumed with purity, and starting to move from purity of the heart to a purity culture that excludes people from the very physician that they need to be near and from the grace within the community. And so my question, you'll see it, maybe it's not in your outline, is how do we move out of this purity culture into a culture of embrace? Uh, Kind of stealing those two words from Miroslav Volf's book, Exclusion and Embrace. And the what, I, what I'm going to do is divide these thoughts into two categories. One of them is a, an identity built on grace. We have to start thinking of ourselves in terms of people who have received grace. We are what we are by the grace of God. And then we have to make strategic sacrifices in our lives 
that will open us to embrace people. And so this Sunday, we're going to look at building an identity of grace. Okay, that's, that's the emphasis. Because Jesus' mission of embrace for us begins when we have an identity, a view of ourselves that is rooted in the gospel of grace. And so these are, these are thoughts that I've, I've condensed from my reading and from my own study of Scripture. Some of them come from the reading. Some of them are things that um, just in my own study, like number three, really just comes from the Apostle Paul. All of these come from Scripture, and we're going to turn to the Scriptures to, uh, to see these. So this is, you know, if someone were to come into my office or I, if I were to, to, to counsel my own heart, these are the kind of things that I would say. Number one, how do you build an identity around the grace of God? Remember that cleansing is a work of grace, not performance. Purity is a work of grace, not performance. Your absence, my absence from engaging in certain types of sin is a work of grace. The progress that my family has made in the gospel, the, the, the way our children have turned out, uh, the marriage that we have, and by God's grace, we have a tremendous marriage. Um, we have a tremendous relationship with our children. We're very proud of our children, just like you are of yours, whether they struggle or not. We love them dearly. But all of that is a work of grace. None of that comes from me. Maybe some of it comes from Debbie, but none of it comes from me. Um, Progress in our careers, abilities that we have, the savings accounts that we have accumulated, our retirement funds, everything that we use to build our sense of who we are, we have to step back and say it is in fact, a work of grace. Whatever cleansing means to you, whether it's absence of sin or whether it's the man-made traditions that have become boundaries of cleansing in your own life, these are any progress in these is a work of God's grace. Consider some scriptures, uh, familiar scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul reminds us that, that it's grace that has done this. Uh, he lists a host of sins and deviant behavior, and then he comes to this conclusion, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Now notice the language there. The washing, the sanctifying, and the justifying is all something that's in a tense where it was done to you. It's not something you did. It was something that God did to you. That's why he ends it with this, by the Spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Paul leaves no room for, and a little help from me. Everything in our lives is a work of the grace of God. Titus, he says this, uh, who gave himself to re- speaking of Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself. Again, notice the language. The purity comes from an outside source. The cleansing comes from an outside source. Uh, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That zealousness does not come from us. 
being zealous for good works is a work of grace. It is the fruit of the cleansing grace of Jesus Christ. And listen to the way Jesus talks about us to his Father. He prays for us and says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Look what he's asking God to do, to set us apart for himself through the word of God, through the truth. You don't set yourself apart. I don't set myself apart. It's something that God does for us. He says, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, again, Jesus speaking, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself. I set myself apart so that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is the complete work of Jesus to take sinners and to purify them for his own possession. And so to begin to, to look at people through new eyes, to, start to, to look at people with kindness and mercy and compassion, to love our neighbor as we're supposed to, it has to start by us laying down our performance standards. It has to start by us saying, I am who I am not because of my performance, but because of the grace of God. Whatever I am, it is by grace. Uh, Mirsoff Wolf says the economy of undeserved grace has primacy over the economy of moral desserts. And I looked up desserts twice to make sure I spelled it right. Okay, so you grammarians come after me. I'll show you my Wikipedia page. Um, I'm kidding. Um, but get the point. The economy of undeserved grace has primacy over the economy of moral desserts. Which one do we live in, by the way? Which culture? What's our whole culture based on? America is based on moral desserts. By the way, every culture, and I'll say this, every religion outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ functions on the economy of moral desserts. It is only Christianity that teaches the economy of undeserved grace. No one should be ex ever be excluded from the will to embrace because at the deepest level, the relationship to others does not rest on their moral performance and therefore it cannot be undone by the lack of it. My relationship with you does not rest on your moral performance and therefore your moral performance cannot undo that relationship. It's what Paul asks the Corinthians after he addresses this sense of self-worth. He says, for who sees anything different in you? And I love that, that phrase, who looks and shows any kind of partiality? Does God look at us and say, well, he's a little bit better than her and she's a little bit better than him? Who sees partiality? And the answer is, we do, God doesn't. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And therein is our issue. We boast in our performance because we think our performance is ours instead of being a work of grace by the Holy Spirit. So the first thing, if we're going to move out of our self-righteousness, if we're going to move into a culture of embracing people, we have to first realize that we ourselves are recipients of grace. We have to throw down all our economy of merit that, that's built in our hearts. The second thing is to imagine grace for others. And this is mine. This, this isn't companies, guys. We have to imagine grace for others. Okay. Look at the language of Paul 
1 Corinthians 6.11, and such were some of you. He lists all these sins and deviant behaviors and says, you used to be this. You were this. How did they become not that? Well, he tells us by the grace of Jesus, but specifically because a missionary, an apostle missionary named Paul, imagined grace for them. And he got on a boat and he traveled to them. Because in Paul's mind, grace could reach them. We have to do the same thing. We have to imagine grace for others. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. I'm going to stop looking at you in human terms. I'm going to imagine something greater for you. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself. Jonah could not imagine grace for the Ninevites. Major rivals, economically, militarily, they were abusing the Israelites. And God says to Jonah, go and minister my mercy. Go and declare to the Ninevites that if they don't repent, these Assyrians, I'm going to wipe them off the mat. And Jonah knows exactly what God's up to and cannot imagine mercy for them. Cannot imagine what God could do in their lives if there was repentance. And refused. And this is what he says when God confronts him. Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And relenting from disaster. God, I knew you were going to be merciful. And I cannot imagine grace for my enemies. Peter couldn't imagine grace in the situation we looked at. The Pharisees couldn't imagine grace for sinners. When when Jesus was, was being anointed by this harlot and she is wiping his, his, or crying on his feet and wiping his, his feet dry with her hair. Um, the, pro, the Pharisees said, this, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. They couldn't imagine grace for her. They couldn't imagine that this unclean person could become clean. That a woman caught in adultery in Matthew 8, Jesus could look and, or John 8 could look and say, go and sin no more, and she would do that. They couldn't imagine grace for people. They held to what uh, Beck calls the negativity dominance, that the uncleanness of others makes the clean unclean. So Jesus now, being touched by this sinful woman, is unclean. They missed it. They failed to understand that Jesus was able to take the unclean and make them clean. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation, unto full salvation of a human being. 
And so we have to imagine grace for others. Think of your family members that rub you. You're about to spend time with them. You're about to spend time with them. You're about to spend time with your mother-in-law. And you know who that's serious. You know, that's like, oh. You're about to spend time with these people. And you're going to sit at the table. And I know because I do this. You're going to sit at the table. And in your mind, there's going to be criticism. I can't believe they spend all this money on that. I can't believe they spent all this time. I can't believe she has to have it just perfect. Can you imagine mercy? Can you imagine saying, hey, I care about the way you want it because you're important to me because you're valuable to God, so I'm going to do whatever you want instead of getting all in a huff. Why does she have to have it this way? We can't imagine grace for people. We can't imagine that if we continue to invest in people's lives that God can actually use us to transform people. That grace from Christ can come mediated through us. Through the Holy Spirit. Using our words and our actions to transform brokenness into wholeness. And this is where if Jesus and the Pharisees were different. Jesus could look at people and imagine grace. Not just imagine. He knew what he was able to do in the lives of sinners. The third thing, we need to see our own neediness. This is hard for us to confront neediness, to admit our dependency. It it goes in line with, number one, seeing that everything is is a work of grace, but it's deeper than that. It's coming face-to-face with who we are as creation. Paul says this to his audience in Romans, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. There's no distinction. Highlight that word. There's no distinction. Folks, God, the scriptures of the New Testament, Paul, James, John, they all say this same refrain over and over. With God, there is no partiality. There's no distinction. It's hard for us to look at that and say, but come on, I've got a master's degree. Certainly, I'm distinct in this culture of moral deserts. Come on, I've achieved. Come on, I've done this. I'm distinct. And our whole culture is set up on making ourselves distinct. But there's no distinction with God, for all have sinned and fall short of his glory. Look what Paul says. We, we, I read this earlier. He says, not that I've already obtained this. Not that I've already obtained this. What is he talking about? He's talking about perfection. He's talking about the fullness of Christ in his life. This is the Apostle Paul near the end of his ministry saying, I I haven't obtained this yet or I'm already perfect. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own yet. And folks, if you can't say that, then grace is not fueling. 
If you can say, I've made it my own, man, I'm, I'm as far in the gospel as I'm going to go. That's, that's, that's devastating to Christian growth. I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then the next phrase, and we've, we studied Philippians together a few years back. Let me remind you, Paul is addressing the maturity culture of the Philippian church. Oh, well, we're, we're mature Christians. If there's anyone in the world who thinks they're mature Christians, it is Reformed Presbyterians. Because let me tell you, man, we have Calvin on our side. Are you wearing your what would John Calvin do bracelet? We are the mature Christians. Listen to Paul. Let those who are, and this is kind of his mocking tone, let those who are mature think this way. This is how mature people should think. I have not obtained this yet. I have not solved all the mysteries of God in theology. I have not appropriated it all to myself yet. I am still a work in progress, growing in grace myself. This certainly speaks not only of our spiritual need, but it should speak to our creatureliness, which we discussed in a couple sermons ago, how we build an identity around our self-sufficiency. We are still needy people. We are still completely dependent on the mercy of God for our health, for our wealth, for our progress, and certainly for our growth in grace and our growth in the gospel. A couple quotes here from Wolf. I just like saying his name. By the way, my grandmother, right? My grandmother was Grandma Wolf. Probably my cousin or something. I don't know. He says, much of the power of evil. Now listen to this. I thought this was so powerful. Much of the power of evil lies in the perverse truth that it tells about the warped well-being it creates. In other words, the lie, the perverse lie, is that you're okay. In the perceived well-being. This is, he, he critiques the Pharisees and he says, everything they did to Jesus, they did out of a good conscience. Much of the power of evil lies in the perverse truth it tells about the warped well-being it creates. The Pharisees believed that they were well. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 9, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not, it's not the healthy that need the physician, it's the sick. Jesus, you're not going to receive the grace of Jesus if you don't know that you're sick. And he says, Paul strips away any pretense. Speaking of Romans 3, he says, Paul strips away any pretense of innocence. There is no pure space. You know, like safe space, right? There's no pure space from which human beings can make pure judgments about purity and corruption. Now, I, I would go a little bit beyond that in his argument and say, this is the only space that makes judgments about purity and corruption. For those of you listening and not watching, it's my Bible. Okay? 
I, I think when God says something is pure, it's pure. When God says something it's corrupt, it's corrupt. But we have to realize that we stand in the forest as we judge the trees. And that's a dangerous place to be. The fourth thing is to confront your own disgust boundaries, your own boundaries of disgust, that social moral disgust that's just innate in who we are and how we operate, um, even in the, the, the family gatherings that we're about to have or the Christmas parties that, we're about to, that, that we've been a part of. And you already know who's going to drink too much and you already know who's going to eat too much. And you're going to watch them shovel that food in and have critical thoughts of judgment and disgust. And you're going to approach them from a superior standpoint. And this is, this is just human nature. Okay? I, had this, I, I had this experience this week. I sat, and, and by the way, I have no problem confessing this because in the middle of it, I started asking myself, why, do I, why am I having these thoughts? Why am I feeling this disgust? Why am I feeling this, this criticism within my heart? As I watched other people do things in this group setting and I was sitting there criticizing them and realized it as disgust, realized it as as something that's outside the boundaries of myself that I've created, what I would do, who I am, and tried to say, you don't represent me. That's not how I would do it. And it's in those moments that I realized, oh, look at that. I got some of this going on in my own heart. It's beautiful to hear the Holy Spirit, to, to, to have the Holy Spirit actually show me that, so I can start to repent. I can start to say, God, why is that in there? Why am I experiencing this? Why do I think that way about this person? Forgive me for that. And start to actually pray for this person, imagining what God is up to in their lives and the beauty that God is going to create in their story for His glory. And how can I be a part of that? Instead of standing on the side as a critic of it. This is the story of Peter having a vision. I haven't put the whole story. I'm going to jump through it. Okay, But Peter has a vision of defiled animals, pigs and stuff, coming down. And as an Orthodox Jew, he didn't eat that stuff. And in this vision, this food comes down, and a voice says, Take and eat. Slay and eat. Now, this happens three times. Okay? And I, you know, there's importance there. There's confirmation there. It didn't happen once. And he woke up and thought, that was a weird dream. It happened three times. And, and maybe there's some numerology there. I wouldn't go there, but, you know, maybe. But there certainly is solemnity when this happens three times. And this is Peter's reaction. By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is, unco- that is common or clean. I love the word common there because it's not... It's not just unclean things. It's things that we view as common. Okay, That's what commoners eat. We eat kale. Commoners eat pizza. I'm kidding. I went too far with that, but you get the point. Okay. Verse 15. God speaking, what God has made clean, 
do not call common. This happened three times. And then he's confronted with a Gentile at the door, a non-Jewish person. And this is what he says. You yourself, he's standing in front of his audience. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any other, anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Think about those words in the cultural battles that we have in America. Think about those words in the political battles that we have in America. Think of the disgust that we communicate in our political battles today towards God's image bearers. Think of the way we speak to each other and speak of each other from the top down. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. (laughs) Folks, if that doesn't grip your heart, the way we talk about people and treat people in this world, then God help us. Truly, I understand. This is Peter before the Antioch incident, by the way. This is Peter before he withdraws from Gentiles. Later, okay? Truly, I understand. God shows no partiality. Red Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight. All of God's image bearers are precious in his sight. He shows no partiality. Male or female, young or old. Okay, boomer? I mean, think about I know it's funny, but think about God shows no partiality. I'm not a boomer, so, you know, I'm exempt from that quip. Um, God shows no partiality. Racial partiality, sins that we would commit. Oh, well, that one's beyond the grace of God. No, it's not. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. And then I think the most powerful statement in this text is verse 44. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. This is, by the way, the argument that Peter uses In Acts 15, when he stands up, it's not Paul, it's Peter who stands up and argues that the Gentiles are full-fledged members of the body of Christ. And he says, because I stood there and preached the gospel and the Spirit fell on all of them, how can we deny? How can we deny them, Axis? The Spirit has fallen on them. Beautiful text. The exclusion of others is an issue of personal identity. Let me read these. The modern self is indirectly constituted through the exclusion of the other. We exclude because we are uncomfortable with anything that blurs accepted boundaries, distorts our identities, and disarranges our symbolic cultural maps. Can you spot your own disgust? Can you look and say, that person... I want nothing to do with them. I'm disgusted by them. And can you figure out 
why that is. And they may have offended you. They may have hurt you. There may be, need to be some healing there. We're going to talk about sacrifice next week. Okay? But can you spot it? Because spotting it gives you a chance for the Holy Spirit to speak into it. And then finally, we die to self. We live by faith in the Son of God. And this is, yeah, this is, I made sure I had the scripture, but this is Paul. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. There it is, right there. I have died. This is death to self. And we're going to consider that as a sacrifice next week. But building our identity around Christ is recognizing that Christ, that through Christ, his death is my death. I have died and a new identity has been born. An identity built around the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Think about that in our identity-obsessed culture, in our brand identity-obsessed culture. Our counterculture is Christ and his Christianity, who loved me and gave himself for me. And this, that little phrase right there, who loved me and gave himself for me, is going to be our conversation next week. How do we love and give ourselves? Because, because that's moving out into sacrifice. A couple of quotes. The spirit enters the citadel of self and decenters the self by fashioning it in the image of the self-giving Christ frees us uh, and frees its will so that it can resist the power of exclusion and the power of the spirit of embrace. The question is not how to locate innocence and work toward it. Rather, the question is how to live with integrity and bring healing to a world of inescapable non-innocence that often parades as its opposite. And this is why the church is so ineffectual. This is why Christianity is so unsalty and our light has been hidden is because our identity we've we've imitated the world and how we think about ourselves and we don't see neediness in others because we can't see it in ourselves we look at others who have not obtained whatever the traditions of men are that we've created we look at others who have not obtained and we say well i have obtained What's wrong with you? All of these things that we've discussed, seeing our lives as a work of grace, imagining grace for others, seeing our own neediness, confronting our own disgust boundaries, these are all critical elements of building our identities around the person and the work of Jesus. Both of the authors, uh, all three actually, of the authors I've read, Keller in another work, Wolf and Beck, have all pointed back to the communion table. I almost wanted to put the table up and kind of image it. We're going to celebrate communion in two weeks. And I'll bring this up again, okay? The communion table is a metaphor for Christians. We often think of it as communion with God. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us it's communion with each other too. 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Beck calls it calls the communion table a psychological intervention. Wolf says the time we celebrate, uh, that, 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 that when we come to the table, 
is at the time we celebrate the divine making space for us and inviting us in. This is what, this is what the table represents. God has made space for us and invited us in. The Lord's Supper was the realization of new social and political arrangements, the embodiment of the social leveling. Think of those words, social leveling, seen in Jesus' ministry. I'm going to bring this up again when we have communion next. January 5th, Pastor Pope is preaching, Randy Pope. For us to remember that what this table does is it brings us all to the foot of the cross, and the cross becomes the center of, our, of who we are, of how we think about ourselves. And when an identity is being built around Christ, then our sacrifice of self becomes the next step. And we'll talk about that next week. Father, thank you for your love for us, for making space within yourself for us, for welcoming us into the relationship that is triune, for us to be joined to Christ and enjoy the love of the Father to the love of the Son, to be loved as children, not as creation alone. Thank you for your grace. Build us around Christ so that we can start to minister to our community with humility. In Jesus' name, amen.